Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Pelin Keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Dijon, a culture writer and critic. This week we're discussing Nightmare Alley and Flea, two films about two different men grappling with their haunting past. Yeah, that's accurate, I would say. I was going to say two guys just lying down and uh, staring up and trying to recount terrible <laughs> memories. <laughs> Which but, is also uh, accurate. Yeah. It, it is. I mean, yeah. I just didn't want to give anything away. That's yeah. All. Which and, I just did. And, and now we fine. have. It's yeah. okay. Not a huge it's spoiler. Fine. Not a huge we'll spoiler. We'll all get over it. Yeah. <laughs> How's your week been, love? Uh, my week has been pretty good. I bought the latest Pokemon game for the Nintendo Switch. <gasps> as as people may know, I am not a gamer, but I'm a casual a Switch hobbyist. Head. I'm a Switch yeah. head. But yeah, I'm loving it. It is yeah. occupying like every part of my day where I like just want to turn off my brain and look at a little screen. Like that's doing the trick. Yeah, I'm a huge Nintendo. Like in terms of the, the uh, nostalgia, console. yeah, yeah the, the the nostalgia real estate that it takes up in my brain. I think Nintendo's the one. Mm-hmm. Like last night, we were looking at YouTube videos of uh, Nintendo World in Japan. Oh, um, or not Nintendo, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, just people going through it, and <laughs> both me and my husband were both just like getting teary eyed oh. about the fact that everything seems so real and cool. Oh, um, we love Nintendo in this yeah. house. Get a yeah. switch. Get a switch. Get a switch. I'll do it. I'll. I will do it. I will do it. <laughs> you know me. I'm. I'm getting up on my little handheld tech devices. Yeah. So. Yeah. One by one. Yeah. You're, yeah. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're gonna make your way there. Um, yeah. <laughs> how are you doing, Bellin? Uh, I'm doing all right. I'm a little bit tired this morning because I stayed up all last night and watched all five currently released episodes of Love Is Blind, which I had never mm, seen before. The second season, season the first yeah. time I'm see- seeing it. Yep. It's like, what a compelling drug, right? Like, right. it's the reason why Love Island banged, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm always late on these things. And it's just, it's a fascinating watch. Yeah. Uh, every, everybody on this thing is just like wildly like stupid and or have terrible ideas about relationships. Uh, so it's, yeah, good mm-hmm. empty watch. So yeah. that's where we're at. Yeah. All right, I will have to catch up on that. I mm. I do always love to have like a a terrible Netflix reality TV show like in yeah. the background. So that'll be my next one. Something that something that takes up your time, and then the second it's done, you never think about it again. Yeah, that's yeah. Like Netflix, The Circle that happens yeah. every single season of that for me. So yeah, it's yep, yep. yeah, it's a nice like brain cleanse. Yeah, we love a brain cleanse. We love a <laughs> little aperitif. Um. Anyway. Speaking of aperitifs and brain cleanses, what have you been watching this week, Jenny? I have been watching Nightmare Alley. Oh, yes. Which is on HBO Max and Hulu. So you have your pick of the streaming platforms. But this, if you're not aware, it is the slow burn neo-noir psychological thriller that came out from Guillermo del Toro, uh, released in December 2021, I believe. And now it's making its way to streaming. So this is based on a 1946 novel by William Lindsay Gresham. And then there is a film adaptation of that novel in 1947, directed by Edmund Golding. So this is the second film adaptation of that book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this version stars Bradley Cooper as Stan, who is an ambitious hustler running from a dark past. He joins a traveling circus, meets a lot of people, and... You know, with the help of the circus's psychic, who's played by Tony Collette, he becomes a successful mentalist, which is kind of the specific melding of 
you know, reading people uh, kind of like pop psychology and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, almost like a form of mental magic. So he's able to become successful. He gets his own act in the city, like a fancy hotel. His assistant is uh, his fellow Carney turned girlfriend played by Rooney Mara. And then in his endless quest for wealth, he sort of becomes acquainted with the psychologist played by Kate Blanchett. And he starts an ill-advised spook-centered grift that ultimately, uh, I would say, seals his fate, leads to his demise, all these things. Uh, yep. Spoiler, it does not work out great for him. Yeah, we lo- Yeah, it's an unhappy ending, which I love personally. So. Yeah. And so, you know, recently Oscar noms came out. This was nominated for four categories, which mm-hmm. is Best Picture, kind of kind of wild uh cinematography (laughs) costume design and production design i think it does not have any chance of winning best picture yeah that was a surprising nom but But, well i mean the academy does a lot they they they, they do love del Del toro Toro. yeah so yeah that's true and you know coming off of you know the shape of water so yeah but it just feels like nobody saw this movie yeah which whatever that doesn't really matter but what do you think what did you think of this uh film helen i actually had a better time than i thought i was gonna have just Mm -hmm. based off of the mixed reviews and i i don't know whether this has just something to do with post-pandemic everybody's watching things in silo and making their own decisions and then also like not having the group peer discussion in real life to to have that kind of uh group think i i guess it's just weird how splintered the reaction Mm. has been so you know i've read critics that have hated it i've read critics that have loved it and and all Mm. of that so i really didn't know what to expect going into it I mean, I knew it was going to look great because Del Toro knows how to shoot a fucking film, bitch. Like, Mm -hmm. it looks incredible. The lighting is incredible. But yeah, I I had a good time. Like, I thought it's an overall good, especially like a um, neo-noir, old school, like the the 1940s element of Mm -hmm. like the stylistic stuff really spoke to me. You could could tell the influence... And um, I even went into because I think it's on YouTube the full 1947 film. Yeah, the, the 1947. 19- yeah, oh, like, did you watch it? I watched the key scenes of it. I didn't want to watch the whole thing, but it, you see it. You see the influence that film had on this. But there is definitely deviation. It's definitely been modernized in terms of like the film techniques. So yeah, yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. I yeah. didn't catch that uh, 1947 film, but yeah, I have like read up on like the key differences. Mm-hmm. I I definitely agree. Like speaking of the the sort of mixed reaction, I'll say like most of the critics who I I would say I read regularly or I like. I guess you could call them my favorite critics. Most of them did not like this film. Right. But I also, you know, I thought it was an interesting movie. It's not one that I think I would watch again, mm, but mm. what I did find the most uh, compelling about it was, in addition to the way it looks, it's kind of how it embodies the genre of, of yes. noir, like film noir. Yes. Like, it, it would be, it's kind of like a really great study in what yeah. noir is. Yeah. And there are, like, a lot of elements that sort of map onto it. They're like visually, like you said, and, and atmospherically, it is really moody. Um, but there's also like the the really luxe and lush details. I love the Art Deco mm-hmm. interiors and yeah, gorgeous. just everything from that era. Yeah, um, and then we also get like some of the archetypes, like the femme fatale. Like we have uh, Kate Blanchett's character. Ugh. Um, she kind of is just like doing what Kate Blanchett does, yeah. which is like wonderful, yes. but yeah. very much like a sort of uh, fitting into the archetype. 
But I also wanted to talk about what I found interesting because I like was reading up more about the genre of noir like mm. after this. And there are so many of like the the fundamental themes and like philosophy of that genre that yeah. that like map onto this movie. So there's the darkness of man and especially like the everyman. Yeah. And then there are the ideas of fatalism and futility. So Del Toro films, like I haven't watched a whole lot of them, but I do know like his thing is monsters, like literal monsters. Mm-hmm. He loves to explore like slightly supernatural themes. His films kind of are like dark fairy tales like Pan's Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But here, interestingly, like, he does not have any, like, literal supernatural monsters. Yeah. Yeah, instead it's just about the monstrous nature of mankind. Yes. I feel like, ostensibly, if we were to say that there was a monster in this film, it is the man in the cage. And it's interesting, obviously, that has such an important notion throughout the film. Um, yeah. It, I thought that was the point in which we see, you know, what we think of as the monster. And he he also has a good way of, like, empathizing with that monster, like, why that monster might be the way that he is. Maybe not Pan's Labyrinth, but certainly with, like, Shape of Water, for example. Yeah, like, the man in the cage, like, he's the carnival's uh, kind of most degrading, monstrous act. Yeah. But then you kind of learn, like, what make someone become someone like that mm-hmm. like in the and that monstrous man it's called a geek basically it's mm-hmm. this um a role in carnivals back in the day where you know carnival owners would feed sometimes opium sometimes morphine like laced booze to desperate alcoholics and that that would trap them into becoming this geek and that's where the the term geek originally stems from it's uh, men who are so crazed, they're so desperate for the alcohol and the, the drugs to never run out that they bite the heads off of live chickens mm-hmm. during their acts, which is like totally horrifying, but also titillating for the audiences. Like you see in this film, they like shudder and like recoil, but they also scream into light and like, yeah, look at that freak. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's like, yeah, that's kind of the quote unquote monster, but actually like who are the real monsters? Like the, the people who, trap him that way like the carnival owner who exploits this guy you have like other monstrous figures in this film like the rich businessman grindle who like wants to buy his way to atonement for his sins which include like spoiler alert the horrific abuse of women yeah you have stan himself and his whole journey of like murder to murder to murder yeah and, uh, and then what he ultimately becomes and i also thought it was interesting how it like fed into this concept of the monstrosity of not just man, but the everyman. Mm, so mm. I was reading this really good piece. I'll link it in our Substack. It's kind of breaking down the the hallmarks of fatalism and futility in noir mm-hmm. um, by by Paul Batters. So what was so like scary about a lot of film noir, or at, at least like kind of cynical and dark, is that mm-hmm. they explore how a man who is just like any other man can turn out this way, how they become so beaten down by the world or something terrible happens. Um, They're just so endlessly disappointed and resigned to their fate because like the world is a dark and dangerous world. So I think like we see that in the geek, of course, because like people are horrified in part because they're like, Oh, this guy looks completely normal. If it weren't for, 
you know, what he's doing here. Yeah. He could be any one of us. Yeah. We could be any one of us could be him. Yeah. So that was part of like the, the horror of the geek, um, historically. And yeah. then you also stan just like these whole ideas of alcoholism and addiction. Like, do they turn the everyman into a monster? Right. And I think the, the time in which the first film came out and like the novel came out, you know, it's post World War Two. Yeah. Uh, so humanity has seen two world wars in the space of like three decades basically and I, I feel like this was like a really interesting way of showcasing that as well just in terms of the themes and how they match yeah. up to the time that it came out especially like you know the whole trope of like running off and joining the circus and like the type of person that does that mm-hmm. it seems jokey but i kind of feel like probably back in the day that was such a scandalous thing to do <laughs> you know what i mean just in terms of like oh yeah. no they've really fallen out of They've really fallen out of society and like what what yeah. society looks like. Totally, it's it's the margins of society. It's this group of traveling freaks. Like only outsiders or people sort of on their last act of desperation would do that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and then the the sort of like last noir theme or, or hallmark that I guess to touch on is like again fatalism, futility. So from that um, piece by Paul Batters, he explains film noir is a world where the grip of fatalism around the protagonist is firm and unrelenting and all pursuits are bound and defined, defined as exercises in futility. Mm. So again, this sort of like describes Stan, not just, you know, what eventually happens to him, but like from his roots, from his origins, he is supposed to be this like you know, Okie boy, like this guy from like bumfuck nowhere. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as much as he tries to like become like a city slick kind of guy, like uh, he has a lot of charm. He knows how to like con his way and move his way like up throughout the world. He ultimately can't run away from the fate that he was born to. Like he is yeah. this unsophisticated, sad little guy whose mom abandoned him and whose dad was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like you see that in the final line of the film, which again, I think we're not going to spoil it explicitly, but it's dark and he finally realizes like he can't run from whatever his destiny right. was. And so he has this line like, Mr. I was born for yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Like it was predestined. Very dark. Yeah, it is it is very dark. And it's funny because when we were watching it, I turned to my husband and I was like, yo, Bradley Cooper would have made a pretty good Don Draper if John Hamm <laughs> was not there. You know what I mean? And it, it's I think I agree, yeah. And it, not even just how he looks and the way that he carries himself, but obviously the themes, which the constant conflict for Don Draper has always been, can he run away from his past? Can he make himself yeah. the man that he wants to be and just look ahead and nev- never look back? Um, and yeah. then, you know, he falters every season. But it's another example of that, right? Of someone yeah. that came from nothing and is really trying to make himself into being more than what he is scared of ending up like which is you know a horse kicked in the face of his drunk father again it's like yeah yeah. i mean the the theme of fatherhood and like parents in general Mm -hmm. in terms of fatalism i love that little connection so much yeah yeah like so much of like what your parents were and what your origins what your roots are that will determine what you become Mm -hmm. and who you are Mm -hmm. and that's like obviously not a very uh helpful idea but, you know, this is about, like, th- things that are working thematically, not necessarily yeah. um, in real Everybody life. that has made the connection between the effect that parents have on their kids have been scared of being like, I'm scared I'm going to turn out like my mom. I'm scared I'm going to turn out like yeah. my dad. Yeah. It's just evergreen, and like, even now. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And, like, with things like abuse and addiction and alcoholism, like, that fear is kind of uh, compounded and so much more dire in a lot of ways yeah yeah of course like i think it there are 
a couple of things that you could like critique in this film. Uh, for one, I agree with everyone who's saying that it was too long. Um, well, it's like two and a half, two and a half hours, something like I that. I get that, but it also but like mind. when you, I didn't mind it because it was quite clearly split into three chapters Mm -hmm. um and each chapter felt different like it is a long runtime but not sure where to shave it off exactly like it was plotted out pretty meticulously definitely and i think maybe the first chapter of it just the 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 life on the carnival yeah um might have felt long because it's like where is this going yeah once the film ends you're like oh that was a setup to really kind of drive the point home and i feel like if you were to rewatch it especially knowing how you know how the film kind of ends up, you really see the orchestration of it all. And I think it was pretty masterfully done personally. Yeah. Um, the, ma- the main critique I had in terms of like, I don't know how to do this without adding extra minutes, uh, but I thought the editing of the first third of it, it felt a little bit like awkwardly stumbling through scene to scene. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was my not very thing. like yeah. seamless. No, it wasn't as graceful as like the second part and the third part. Yeah. And I don't know if maybe they did shoot more and it was meant to be longer and they had to kind of cut it down. I don't know. No idea. So Yeah, yeah no idea. Point of that. I also like want to ask you what you think about the way some of the characters are fleshed out. So I'm I'm like sort mm. of conflicted about Dr. Lilith Ritter slash Kate Blanchett. Oh, how so? I it's hard because I think I love Kate Blanchett always. I think she's magnificent at what she does, and so often that is like a version of this, this mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. cat-like, impenetrable, diamond hard uh, sort of woman yeah. who might stab you in the back, right. might like be a ride or die. Like <laughs> she's great at that. Yeah. But this character, something about her motivations, or maybe there are like too many motivations, or mm. like the motivation they try to explain. I, I feel like there could have been more on that. Like something she held like all of her cards a little bit too close to the point yeah. where I think the character was, you know, the obscured a little bit, like the psychology of the psychologist herself. Yeah. And I didn't know whether that was intentional to just ha- have her be so good at this, that she's basically yeah. a black box. That very well could have been. Yeah. But yeah, I agree. I, I do think that she was a little bit too opaque yeah Uh, yeah i get what you mean i think she is a bit of an obvious casting choice for a role like this especially because like it's rooney mara too and it's like a carol uh, i know i was thinking that (laughs) because she has basically the same hair and uh, yeah Yeah. it's i don't know i i get you i just when that final scene the the confrontation between the two happens Mm -hmm. and you see like like her face when she's like so hateful of yeah. of Stan, it just felt so delicious that I was like, "Fuck it, she's so good at this." Like, I mean, she's very good. Yeah. Kate Blanchett is like, I don't, yeah, I don't blame anyone at all of her guests. No, her, no, uh, and she this. knows she knows how to wear a skirt suit. You know, what I mean, like yeah. the body, yeah. bitch, especially yeah. in that Art Deco, the gorgeous Art Deco oh, office. That office, that office oh is God. incredible. Holy yeah. shit! Like, seriously, one of my favorite interiors on film maybe of all time it's so good yeah i was gonna say i didn't really care for rooney mara's character and i was a little bit disappointed that she wasn't given a little bit more of uh complexity and just being like the moral high ground uh moniker of the movie like i don't know i just uh, i would have wanted more for rooney she's so much better of an actor than that role allowed her to be so 
Yeah, I I agree with that too. Um, I do think like basically the women were a little bit underserved by, Mm. or anyone who wasn't Stan more or less. Although even Stan was a little bit like, um, like you just don't know what's going on in this guy's head most of the time. So I'd say like almost all the characters to some extent were kind of, uh, maybe a little too sharply drawn in like the the archetype to the point where there wasn't that much uh, revealing of what right. was going on underneath. I, I mean, I thought Tony Collette did a lot with what she was given, so she felt yeah. a little bit more real to me than Rooney Mara. Me too. For Even though she was only in it for like a grand total of like a minutes few minutes. minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but like the last scene that they have together... Um, the cards. Yeah, the cards, and just her being like, don't do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, I love a warning. I fucking love a warning that goes unheard. It's so good. We have some more movie recommendations for you today, brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Mubi premieres a new film every day. There's always something new to check out, from timeless classics to festival fresh gems. With Mubi, each and every film is handpicked, so you can rest assured knowing that you have the best cinema streaming at your fingertips. Uh, so one thing that I am looking to check out on Mubi is the film Gook by Justin Chan uh, about the LA riots in 1992, and I I've been hearing good things about it over the years and that it presents like a really fresh angle. So excited to watch that. Sweet. Yeah. And I would also recommend checking out Atlantics, which is Matty Diop's film. It's on Cut to Black, which is movies Black History Month roundup of films. And this is one of my favorite films that I saw in the last few years. And you can also check it out on Mubi for free for 30 days at Mubi.com forward slash criticism is dead. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash criticism is dead for a whole month of great cinema for free. Helen, what did you watch this week? So this week I watched Flea, which is on Hulu also. Flea is a film that was recently nominated for three Oscar categories, not just one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Best animation, best international feature, and best documentary feature. Mm. So I... uh, I did a bit of a pivot. I'm not really an animation girl. I don't really like animation yeah. movies. And I was yeah. like, fuck yeah, all right. Three nomina- like three nomination in like heavyweight categories, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. like it's probably it probably bangs. So let me give it a go. And for those that need a little bit of context, this is created by the Danish filmmaker Jonas Poa Rasmussen. It's an animated documentary film that tells the story of Rasmussen's Afghan friend, Amin. And the cool thing is that this friend is hidden behind the alias of Amin, the name, and he's also hidden behind animation. And his hidden identity is for very valid reasons, which become apparent in the first half of the film. We will spoil it at some point in this podcast, but Amin's voice is his own. And throughout the documentary, he talks to his friend Rasmussen, who he has known since he was 15. And they talk about his journey from Kabul to Denmark. And as well as animation, we do see some found footage that demarcate the years and the countries that Amin, in his journey, visits or ends up in. So how did you feel about this as a person that watches a little bit more animation movies than I do? Well, I think it's a good film. You know, the actual narrative elements of it are really good. Animation is a little bit... Animation is hard to do. Animation is expensive. I'll say that. Especially if you're going for like a more hand-drawn organic sort of feel versus kind of like the CGI versions right now. This animation, I really admire what they tried to do. It was a little bit shaky. So like visually, it's not the most beautiful in terms of like what 
this uh, format can do for yeah. it. But it's a really good story, I'll say. Yeah, it does the best it can with what it's got, to quote our queen, Mariah Carey. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, this... Honestly, this kind of like piques my interest because like every couple years, there's always a film about refugees and about asylum seekers and the Mm -hmm. Academy laps it up and the West laps it up. And it's because I don't know whether it's just like, this is important and we have to shine a light on it, which yeah, of course, but it's also just something that I was curious to watch to see if it was actually good or if people Mm -hmm. were just feeling some kind of guilt (laughs) about, about whatever. That's, that's, that's a key word. Yes. Um, so I actually think this is good. I do have some critiques of it, but overall, I think the most interesting part of it was the fact that animation is used as a cloak, um, essentially mm-hmm. to kind of hide identity and to hide details. We still don't know who Amin is. I am curious about what they're going to do if this wins, uh, like during like, the Oscars. Do you think it's inevitably going to come out? Maybe. Because, mm-hmm. you know, spoiler alert, the reason why he's hiding it is because his asylum in Denmark is based on the lie that, the, the lie that he was told to say as a kid that his entire family is dead, uh, which they're not. They are scattered around Europe. The second half of their asylum journey was fragmented um, due to money issues or whatever. So he's had to tell this lie his whole life, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. And this is the first time he's kind of come out with it and it's with the promise of hiding his identity. He definitely doesn't look, he doesn't look like what the animated Amin looks like. So that's another thing. But Mm -hmm. I just, I I thought the use of it, just not just in terms of hiding his identity, but also using animation to retell history, retell trauma, essentially. Um, Like emotive storytelling, Unless you have a massive budget, it's really hard to really showcase the fantastical elements of what recounting a terrible or a beautiful, uh, like, you know, larger than life memory retelling is. Um, it, it's just a little mm-hmm. bit easier to do that through animation. Yeah. And this, this, I think this film kind of, do, like we said, it does the best it can to kind of showcase that. And I think, like, in terms of the story side of it, the point in which Amin has decided to tell his story comes at an interesting point in his life Mm -hmm. where he is at the point where he is older, he's hoping to buy a home with his boyfriend, um, and that question of home is understandably fraught for him. And, you know, (laughs) laying down roots is also understandably fraught. So he essentially recounts his journey... Uh, as a refugee from being a kid in Kabul growing up and the joy of that and then just how his life slowly started spiraling into something that he could not control at all not only as a person living in Afghanistan but also as a kid and I I thought him being a child uh, and talking about his childhood and talking about like witnessing adults around him was probably the most heartbreaking part of it Mm -hmm. um you know, you could tell that he hasn't really talked about it that often. So yeah, I thought it did a really good job of just like leaning into the childhood element of it. Yeah, there was a certain kind of sweetness and tenderness to that that I found pretty affecting. But yeah, especially like seeing things through his eyes as a kid. And now as he's like working through it from the present, because I agree, like this is almost this is kind of like mm-hmm. therapy for him. It's the first time he's saying mm-hmm. a lot of these scenes out loud. 
And it's not just like his realizations and reflections about his family, his childhood, the the trauma of what happened, becoming a refugee, Mm -hmm. but also like his own personal journey, like how he realized he was gay, how he hit it or just like knew he thought like, okay, I need to cure myself of this somehow. Like, I know this is like not okay for me. And how he came out to his family, like those are really beautiful. Um, I I think I appreciate it most, yeah. just like how personal so much of this was. Like, in, yes, it yeah. it really it elevated it from something that could have been like, like you said, like not to be crude, but like uh, another refugee story that's meant to, right. you know, relieve the guilt of the, the Western and global North audiences who are watching this. It really made it a personal. Yeah homecoming for him yeah because a lot of films like this run the risk of being like the joke of the futility of showing it mm-hmm. um you know you <laughs> awareness is one thing i feel like it's always good to have art to increase awareness yeah. and make people understand what a journey like this entails but i i don't know if it's just the cynical side of me that's just like okay and then what like we've yeah uh, we've, yeah it's just infuriating that this is the only thing that we can apparently do but yeah i think you're right like i think his journey as a refugee it kind of recounts the all the painstaking steps that many people that have seen or read about what a refugee Mm -hmm. journey looks like it's very similar so it's you know a lot of waiting a lot of living in fear of authorities whether it's you know immigration or uh, police it's a uh, lack of funds and having to just rely on other family members elsewhere that are in a slightly better circumstance than you to provide you the funds to mm-hmm. get what it is that you need to get it's human trafficking but yeah i think i think where the film offered a lot of solace and i think the strength of this film this film and honestly the biggest strength of it is his youth essentially like every time he's re- recounting his experience his youth seems to persist in trying to exist and make itself be known which i thought was really heartwarming because it's like yeah of course he's a fucking kid like no matter what he's he's a kid totally and he's the baby of the family yeah Um, yeah there's a certain element of being the youngest and yeah yeah and how you know not just you are more youthful but how everyone around you tries so hard to preserve that sense of youth and innocence for you yeah like there's a warm shield around him and as we see clearly from like especially what like his his middle brother does for him mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. what his mother like everyone and his older brother uh yeah there's a really heartwarming in that sense and, yes. and touching but also sad because you see how so much of the circumstances uh stripped him from this opportunity to yeah. just like enjoy his youth uh yeah. like like yeah. so many other people do yeah um I'm- and it also yeah. makes you totally understand his survivor's guilt that he yeah. talks about briefly, I would say, but it, it, it does come up and the way that he does feel like he is indebted. His family loves him so much and he doesn't, yeah. it, it's so clearly communicated. And so then you understand why he is a workaholic that's really trying mm-hmm. his best to do and why he lies and like tries to protect his family as much as he can. It's yeah. just, yeah, it's it's incredibly singular. Like, his story is very singular, and I'm sure there are many more Amin's in the world in general, but the fact that this film kind of really... And I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that Rasmussen is friends with him. Is yes, it, yes. There is there is such a empathy towards his singularity and the need to kind of tell that singularity and understand that he isn't just any refugee. Like all refugees, they are all people that have their own stories, that have their own lives, 
and that's the hot that's the bittersweetness of it you know um mm -hmm. is reminding yourself that like oh this is still happening like with afghanistan that another refugee wave yeah i think the thing that really kind of stuck out to me um i read an interview with rasmussen in the guardian mm -hmm. where he kind of talked about like oh his family also has experience in fleeing like his jewish great-grandparents they fled russia mm -hmm. and then his grandmother f fled germany from the nazis so there's like this there's you know even between two friends that are seemingly different there is this like intergenerational an international evergreenness of like war asylum oppression and yeah. fleeing for the sake of survival you know it's so oh it's so heavy <laughs> like when you yeah. really really sit and think about it because it feels like nothing ever seems to change yeah. but i think what this film does whether or not it was aware of it or not was just showcasing how there is a persistence in survival there is a need to be better and put yourself in a better situation to really live life and through love and through family and through caring for one another you you can overcome that it's just as strong as humanity's persist persistence to be terrible you know which uh it's sad that there's that balance that that balance has to exist but it is also a bit of a a relief that he is yeah. able to tell the story, you know, like yeah, and you see uh, how how his life turns out and yeah. how it actually turns out quite wonderful, um, yeah, yeah, and you feel very very happy for him, yes, um, specifically, and that's a really interesting thing to learn about uh, Rasmus and I didn't know, you know, his own experience or his family's mm -hmm. own experience with uh, fleeing, yeah, and yeah. I think it was probably a really careful choice for him then not to include any of that in the film yeah uh, and to center it wholly on i mean his friend mm -hmm. i mean and yeah that's that's a huge strength uh also like just yeah being f such good friends with the subject between the subject and the filmmaker you have this this sense of intimacy but also like he he gives his camera fully over to to i mean and uh, yeah that's a yeah. really i don't want to say like a kind act because obviously he's making art out of this but it's a really it's i don't thoughtful. know that's it's yeah, a thoughtful it's, it's like thoughtful, a yeah. yeah it's it's real friendship in, yeah in a sense yeah it's, it's a tricky place to be as a documentary filmmaker and i think he's kind of like handled it pretty well for himself mm -hmm. so yeah yeah um the critique that I have with this film, other than agreeing with you about the animation, was I don't know whether it's because like you're dealing with two men that are talking about emotional things, mm -hmm. or whether it's just because they didn't want to go there. But I really wish, and I guess I expected more from Amin with regards to his emotional state as an adult. I think it's very briefly touched upon to just give context, to just give a little bit of like, you know, the arc to the story and for the film itself. But mm -hmm. it, I really felt like they could have gone further with regards to how this experience has affected his relationships, whether they're romantic, uh, how it's mm -hmm. affected his work ethic, you know, his survivor's guilt and what that means for him. Yeah. I mean, you it, get, it's, it, it's hard. But, yeah. It's hard yeah. because this is like a real person who's mm -hmm. like talking about it. And maybe that person has like not yet arrived at the point where they're right. emotionally prepared to, to go into this. Like it's, Talking about the past, there is a sort of distance mm -hmm. uh, you can apply to it. And from that, that is like where you can start to make sense of what happened to you. But for something happening right now, I can see maybe like this, this guy, possibly he didn't really know how to even begin to get into it. Yeah. yeah. But I agree. Like, yeah. I agree. Like they, there are only maybe a couple of lines dedicated to like either like the 
the romantic relationship side mm-hmm. of his adulthood or his like a uh, high achieving career side of his adulthood yeah. and you get enough of a sense to like understand but it's it's not quite like uh delving deep into the sort of uh, psychology of that yeah and it's only because like i think that a lot of stories like this and a lot of films like this they do end up at a point where it feels like tidy and it's all happy ending and I just mm-hmm. don't believe that. Like, I don't believe that it's yeah. completely happy, um, which right. is fine. Like, nobody ever is. <laughs> like, you know, whether or not you were a refugee or not, it's besides the point. But I think there's a hyper-specificity in terms of his journey that, you know, as someone that is a gay man that now lives in Denmark, that has his family scattered everywhere, and he's dealing with, like, fully committing to this to this man um, and to mm-hmm. a house and everything, there is something very pointed about that. You know, the the film kind of tricks you into thinking that we might get that introspection because it does feel like a therapy session. Um, yeah. But yeah, it does seem to skirt around it. And I think it's just more that we talk understandably a lot about his journey and about his past. I was, I just wanted a little bit more introspection from him. But again, it's asking, it's like wishful thinking. It's just asking for too much, I think. Um, yeah. I do get what you're saying about like uh, too neat of an ending, like happy ending. But I, I did love the the last frame basically yeah. where they go from the the animated like hand-drawn like view of from their new ha- home yeah to the real um yeah. and then it yeah and then it switches yeah. to the to the actual footage uh, oh it's gorgeous i yeah. i thought that was a really beautiful transition yeah i loved and, it too and, i loved it too. yeah was there a particular sequence in the film that you thought was your favorite whether it was a you know a good or a bad one well i thought that that final frame was definitely my mm, favorite mm, um mm, mm. Yeah, I I'll say like for the other bits of animation, I appreciated like what they kind of tried to do in like some of the more uh, transitional moments, like whether from the past to the present or mm-hmm. like a journey, like these kind of swirling brushstrokes and these like uh, vibrating forms yeah. against this kind of like yellowed background. Not particularly beautiful to me and like mm. my my personal subjective sense, mm-hmm. but like uh, emotive. Like yeah. I, I think it accomplished the emotive goal. Yeah, especially with the darker moments where it was just like there was no detail in the form, and you just see like eyes and a mouth, and that's yeah. it. Yeah, the horror of that. Yeah, no, I I yeah. agree. I agree. Um, I think my favorite part was where he came out to his family. Oh, and that, that was really oh, sweet. Oh my goodness, because it. <laughs> I think like that. It, it just turns the whole expectation that people have yeah. on his head. Obviously, like you know, I'm not I'm not Afghan, but I I know the Middle East. I know how it feels about being gay in general. So you just assume the thing that Amin assumes, which is that he's going to be outcast, and just the reveal of what ends up happening. Because initially, when when his brother is like, "All right, let's go. You're coming with me." I was like, oh no, he's gonna take him to like, like the whorehouse, like a, you know? Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. Um, I and, thought that too. Yeah, and just the way that it turned out, I was so happy. It just it made me cry. That everlasting love that his family seems yeah. to have for him is. I I beautiful. really love. I was really touched by that moment. Yeah, too. yeah. So I I love that part, and I also loved uh, the part where like his journey into Denmark in the back of the van with the slightly older boy. Um, mm-hmm. and they're listening to music mm-hmm. together and he's talking about him as a crush. It's just, I thought that was beautiful. And I get, again, it just yeah. kind of encapsulate what this film is about, which is this guy's like, he's a kid literally by himself yeah. being trafficked <laughs> out of Russia into Denmark and 
at that point, the only thing he can think of is that the only other person that he's with, the, this slightly older boy, he has a massive crush on him. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just, it's just perfect. It's just adorable. Yeah. The touches of still youthful innocence uh, scattered yeah. throughout this. Like, yeah. as dark and traumatic as a lot of uh, events of a refugee, of events of a childhood can be, like, it's it feels really dumb to say this, but it's just like the... The humanity and the... You are still you. You're still you. Yeah, like, you, yeah you're still horny. Like, it's fine. <laughs> horny persists, baby. No <laughs> um, yeah, no, totally. And I think, like, for anybody else, I really recommend it. It's on Hulu. It's an hour and a half. It's such a tidy film. And I mm-hmm. think, curious to see which awards it wins for, for the Oscars. So for culture notes this week, let's chat a little bit about the Oscar nominations. They came out on Tuesday, last Tuesday. So it's funny when they first got announced, I I feel like everybody had something reactive to say that was uh, (laughs) It's just weird. I feel like we're all losing our minds a little bit. Like, oh my God. Um, So yeah, they came out. We will link them in the sub stack for you to take a look. But yeah, just Google it. I think the main question that I had for you, like I have like three questions, but the first one being, what are your thoughts on the overall nominations? Because it's a little bit different this year. They feel a little bit different. To me, anyway. What do you think? Well, I'll say, like, caveat is I feel like I really haven't seen a lot of the films uh, that Mm. have been nominated. Blame my poor movie-watching habits as well as uh, whatever. The pandemic. Um, You've been... And also, like, you're not... like I feel like it's definitely more towards, like, the bi-coastal cities. Like, LA and New York have had a lot of these films shown. And anybody... Because you're in Michigan for the most most part. It's hard to see a lot of these films because, yeah, you know, you don't have your indie cinemas that are just screening this stuff. That's true. But, like, the sense that I got and what I'm what I'm hearing is that, like, overall people are, like, kind of pleased with what's happening. Like, you mm. know, in previous years, there have always been the notes of, like, okay, like, the Academy is, like, so narrow and limited in their view. They gravitate towards the same kinds of things. Like, uh, they never want to highlight, like, international films or, uh, you know, they hate diversity, et cetera, et cetera, stuff like that. Um, But, yeah, from what I'm hearing, my impression is that, like, people are pretty pleased in general with how it shook out this year. Is that accurate to to your view about it? I think so. I think the main thing is that, like, in previous years, the films just sucked. Like, a lot of the <laughs> films nominated were just not good. Uh-huh. Um, but because they showcased, I don't know, a really famous person, like a like a biopic, or because mm. they, I don't know, it was like a feel-good story about racism. <laughs> yeah, back. Um, hello. Yes. Yeah, hello. Um, but this feels a little bit better thought out in terms of both the types of films that they are but also the filmmakers that they come from um so best in the best picture for example there's belfast coda don't look up drive my car dune king richard licorice pizza nightmare alley the power of the dog and west side story a lot of these make sense mm-hmm. you know like i think the most uh controversial is probably don't look up in this category yeah. um but it's adam mckay it's the most academy nomination because it's like it's a lesson in something, you know, and this is like a lesson in climate change. And, you know, the Academy yeah. likes to kind of tip like its hat moral, towards... Yeah, moral lessons. Yeah, exactly. But I think the biggest surprise was probably Drive My Cars uh, by Ryusuke Hamaguchi. His film got nominated quite a bit, and it's a it's a Japanese film. It's three hours long. 
Yeah, I have no idea how it ended up on this list, apart from the fact that loads of critics love this film. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what kind of lent itself towards his nomination. And that's that's cool. It's cool that they listen to critics. <laughs> I have I have seen this film and I don't think it's as good as everybody says it is. Uh, don't okay, come got, for me. I gotta watch it. I gotta watch it. And don't come for me. I did, I did watch it in a cinema. Do not come for me. It wasn't the time. It's not because it's long. Okay? Um, but... I mean, every, everything else seems to make sense to me. Um, yeah. So, so my my second question to you is like, in terms of like, if you had to pick three, let's say you've got a choice, like you have the power to give these awards to three people or three films. Okay. Which um, ones would you give it to? All right. Yeah, I'm just gonna like choose from any category. Yeah. And again, note, I have not seen a lot of these. It doesn't. Um, a lot of America hasn't either. That's the yeah. Thing, so. Yeah. I'll say. Best actress, uh, give it to Olivia Coleman for The Lost Daughter. Period. Yeah. Best supporting actor, I'd maybe say Cody Smith McPhee, The Power of the Dog. Oh, yeah. And best uh, cinematography, give it to Dune. Mm hmm. Those are my three nominees that I would want to win in That's whatever the categories one. are. What about yeah. you? What are your three? Oof. Okay, so I would say give best adapted screenplay to The Lost Daughter, mm-hmm. um, and then give best actor to Will Smith. Oh, King Richard. Yeah. Fuck it. Just give it to him. Mm-hmm. Like the rest, of, the rest of them, you expect it of them. I think just an Oscar for Will would be wonderful for him after a year or many years of taking the L <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. in his personal life. Um, and then I would say give best picture to Dune. Mm, all right. Because Noted Dune head. Yeah, because I've no idea why Denis Villeneuve is not in the best director category. Yeah, yeah. Some it's like I think it's did note that. Yeah, I think it's like the second most nominated film. Uh, well, how do you think these things happen? Like this guy literally ran the whole show. Um, yeah. Um, so, so is I, that is that your snub then? It's of one of my list? snubs. It's right. one of my snubs. What are your snubs? Do you do you have a snub? <laughs> well, the Green Knight, I guess. Which, mm. as you know, people may know, I the more time has passed since I saw the Green Knight, the more I think I like it in in retro- yep. retrospect. Um, I think there's a snub for that definitely in like the visual categories, like cinematography. Mm-hmm. Um, visual effects best uh, writing yeah yeah what um, what is like another snub for you i have two best actress snubs oh yeah go for it um i think alana heim should have gotten a best actress nomination or even best for licorice supporting pizza for licorice pizza i thought uh-huh. it was an incredible debut just get nicole out of there like get i'm sure i love <laughs> i love nicole too but just get her out of here and then also renata rensvi from the worst person in the world i think she definitely mm. should have gotten a best actress nomination mm-hmm. uh another snub that i feel like people aren't talking enough about is tragedy of macbeth Catherine hunter should have gotten best supporting actress as the witches she's a theater actress and this is like i think the first time that a filmmaker has really put the spotlight on her and her skills. Um, and she's incredible. Like she is uh, after Denzel, she's the most memorable part of that film. So I think that was a snub too. They should have, they should have given her something, but you know, the real ones know, and that's all that matters. So that is us for this week. We are off next week. Just a note. Pellin is finally taking a much deserved break 
Yes. And I will be taking a break with her, although yeah. not not physically, but in spirit. But we'll be back the week after next. And in the meantime, if you are checking out anything that we should also check out, uh, just let us know. We appreciate all of your recommendations. Uh, you can email us criticismisdead at gmail.com or DM us or tag us uh, on Instagram and Twitter, criticismisdead. So for links to everything that we've been talking about, as well as uh, some other links, uh, you can subscribe to criticismisdead.substack.com. Please maybe give us a sweet five stars on Apple Podcasts or your yeah. podcast uh, app of choice. Yes. Tell a friend about us. Uh, feel free to brag to the world that you listen to us. Uh, we yeah. love it when you all do that. Yeah, um, it's true. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. We will see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks, guys. Bye. Criticism is Dead is produced by Palinkeskin Lou and Jenny Gijon. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Lou.